The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. One of those challenges is, can I, you know, can I grow my food within 100 meters of my house for the entire year, and can I live in a net zero house? And the answer to those two is going to be no. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at how alternative energy works in the Arctic. We speak to two members from the Arctic Energy Alliance, a nonprofit helping communities reduce their energy usage and transition to more affordable and sustainable forms of energy. And the lessons they're learning along the way can help those of us further south. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Conversations are happening throughout North America about how to shift electricity generation and home heating away from fossil fuels towards renewable and sustainable sources. But with a lot of that development happening in the population-dense areas in the U.S. and southern Canada, how well are technologies working out further north? Joining me today are Louis Azzolini and Linda Todd from the Arctic Energy Alliance, a nonprofit based in the city of Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Louis Azzolini is the executive director of the Arctic Energy Alliance. He has extensive experience in community development and planning, environmental and socioeconomic issues in Canada's north, having lived and worked there for 50 years. He's a registered professional planner with master's degrees in urban and regional planning and business administration. Linda Todd is a longtime resident of the Northwest Territories, whose work with the Arctic Energy Alliance began in 2009 when she was hired to facilitate community energy planning workshops. She works closely with the Arctic Energy Alliance's satellite offices and with communities throughout the territory on a wide range of projects, from upgrading the energy efficiency of a community's homes to working with Indigenous elders to develop new terminology related to renewable energy. So thanks to both of you for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Just to start us off with some background information, for people who aren't familiar with Canada, can you explain where the Northwest Territories is and what sort of geography and climate it includes? I'll start that. Uh, So the Northwest Territories lies between Nunavut uh, to the east and the Yukon Territory to the west. Uh, For folks in the U.S., It would be equivalent to Alaska in terms of where it's located on North America. We are above Alberta and Manitoba, people in Canada. So we're above the 60th parallel, and the territory extends pretty much right up to the North Pole. Um, We've got a variety of climates and vegetation. The southern part of the territory would be a kind of a taiga kind of climate, uh, boreal forest. We have one of the longest rivers in the world, the um, Mackenzie River, uh, that empties into the, begins in in Great Slave Lake. Uh, It's part of the watershed that comes in from part of uh, the eastern part of BC, Peace River system. And uh, that river empties into the Beaufort Sea or Arctic Ocean. And so the climate varies from kind of northern temperate to ice in the very northern part. Above the Arctic Circle, we have a number of communities above the circle. So they have um, extended periods of darkness in the winter, um, ranging from a few weeks to a few months. And similarly, in the summer, uh, the sun doesn't set for a few weeks to a few months. So how large are a lot of the... 
What what sort of range of sizes of communities uh, do you have in the Northwest Territories? The largest city would be the capital, which is Yellowknife, population about 20,000. And in the south, that would be equivalent to like major city like uh, New York, Vancouver, whatever, in terms of like relative to the territory. That's the center and the capital. Um, there are some other communities, populations between about 1,200 to 3,000. And the rest of the communities, which are, which would be most of the communities, uh, range in population from maybe, say, 120 people to maybe eight, 900. So are, do most of the communities have road access? Are there highways? Um, or, or are they more remote? There, a lot of those communities are remote. In the southern parts of the, part of the Northwest Territories, we have road access, and there would be eight communities connected by road. Also, the community of Inuvik um, is connected to the um, Alaska Highway, to the Yukon, by the Dempster Highway, unpaved. When we talk highways here, it doesn't mean necessarily they are paved, but they are all weather roads. There's also a new highway been put in place from Inuvik to Tukmiaktuk, which is on the shore of the Beaufort Sea. And we have a winter road system, which is, you know, when the snow comes and uh, after it's been cold for a while, you have portages that are paved, if you will, with snow and um, ice roads. So you're driving over ice. So that connects um, for a period of time, except for two communities, um, in the winter, there is road access, although, you know, not for a small, low-clearance vehicle, four-wheel or large truck. And so given how remote the communities are, and there's not all-weather infrastructure connecting them, how is building heat handled? You know, I live in Edmonton. We have a natural gas distribution system that handles the city and a lot of the outlying communities. Uh, but how do a lot of uh, t- communities handle it in your area? Well, in smaller communities, and most of them would be indigenous communities, um, it's generally heating oil or wood, if they have wood. Um, there's a couple of communities where they're um, they're they're Arctic, so they don't have any uh, their tundra climate, so they don't have wood. And uh, generally, it's heating oil. Um, we there is natural gas trucked in to Nuvik, but that's used mostly to generate electricity. Uh, there are oil and gas reserves around the Beaufort. The, they did have natural gas for a while by Inuvik. In the southern part of the NWT, in the large centers, so that would be uh, Yellowknife, Hay River, Fort Smith, there's uh, propane. Not a lot of people heat with pro- propane, but some do, and heating oil. Uh, very little heating with electricity here because of the cost of electricity like we pay about 31 cents a kilowatt hour which is generally three times the price of southern Canada and a lot of people use wood stoves. The other thing over the last 12-15 years there's been um, a growth in biomass heating using wood pellets so there are a number of large facilities in the larger centers are heated by wood pellets. Um, the government of the Northwest Territories has installed uh, large wood pellet boilers in schools, the jails, some of their office buildings, and a number of community buildings are, are starting to see that as a viable means of heating. Yeah, so let, let's talk about uh, maybe biomass for a little bit, because it might not 
jump to many people's minds immediately when we're talking about sustainable energy or renewable energy that wood burning stoves fall into that category. So, um, so what makes wood pellets uh, a sustainable option and an economic option? Well, there's two things there. One is wood stoves and the other is pellets. So we've, AEA has been involved in a number of uh, community partnership projects to install wood stoves. So we install energy efficient, code compliant wood stoves. They're code compliant installation. So that is very effective for um, uh, people in their home because they can harvest their, their own wood if they wish, or there could be a little byproduct of employment. People buy wood, and it's um, a sustainable form of heating. So, And with um, efficient stoves, you know, you get a longer burn time and a more efficient burn, less emissions. So that's one project we've worked with a lot. On a larger scale, um, the, that's where the uptake on, on biomass pellet boilers has taken place. So uh, we have a few, not a lot, but a couple of district heating systems, and that's being looked at um, in a positive way by many other communities where they can heat a couple of buildings um, with a pellet boiler. Some communities have a vision to be able to harvest their um wood and um, heat using wood chips. So that's something uh, one community in particular has been working on for a while. There's a lot of details to work out logistics, you know, how do you dry it, how do you store it, etc. But again, it's um, a product that is available, can't be transported. I mean, it's similar to transporting uh, oil, kind of big grain tanker trucks. Um, You can use winter road systems. Um, It's proved viable and reliable. And so those, and people have been learning how to, how to maintain that equipment. So those are all pieces that you need to have a new technology become friendly, if you will. You You need your fuel source. You need product. The product has to be reliable and you need people who know how to maintain that equipment. So. We're kind of growing that. Yeah. What sort of, uh, when you're introducing a, a new technology to a community or even just expanding the use of an existing technology in a community, um, how do you, I guess there's a couple of questions I have. One is, how do you get, what do you do to get buy-in in that community to, to start transitioning people over to a different technology? And then how do you build up the skills in that community to make sure that, you know, they can take care of things themselves and don't have to try and get somebody flowing in when there's no road access to fix a piece of equipment? Well, that's an interesting series of questions. So I'll just... I'll use a bit of my own experience to reflect back on that, like to answer that. Mm-hmm. And we may have some additional things too. So when I got hired here at AEA, my role was um, to work with communities. And I guess that's key. You know, one of the our underlying principles, values of the organization is about partnership. So working with people, working with people where they're at and respecting those communities. So with the community energy planning we started off, we had, um, AEA had gathered data on energy use. So, um, fuel use, electricity, wood, gasoline, basically, you know, the, how much of each of those products for forms of energy were used, 
what they were used for, uh, heating homes, running vehicles around, skidoos, whatever, and uh, looked at, uh, in terms of how many gigajoules of use, what the cost of that was, and compared it um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions compared to the rest of the territory and to Canada and the world in general. So that, in essence, was um, a community energy selfie, if you will. It reflected to the community what they were using, how much of it, and what it was costing them. So that formed a good place to start uh, talking about what people thought about that. Was that good? Um, They learned a lot about what their habits were. It gave them a different perspective. And out of that, um, uh, identifying what, if any, things they might want to change or what was important to them. What was their vision around uh, energy and their use? So a lot of these communities, like I said, they're indigenous communities. So they have, um, you know, a history, a background of, of self-sufficiency and um, living in a respectful relationship with the land, with the environment. And those values are still fairly strong. So that fits in um, in terms of energy conservation and efficiency, and it also fits in in terms of renewable energy um, technologies. So harvesting the sun or, you know, using wood for heat. These are, are things that people, you know, it's not hard to get your head around. So um, out of that came a series of, of um, goals uh, that uh, the community decided on. And so we did talk with different age groups and different groups of people, but because they're small and relatively homogeneous communities, um, it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of shared knowledge and cohesive. Not always, but um, in terms of this, uh, people uh, pretty much came together on what their goals were. So that's like that piece and a little bit about how we uh, do our best to work in partnerships. So out of that came um, projects for energy efficiency with buildings. Um, up here, the cost of transportation. So for certain um, equipment and technology, that's an added cost. Um, the demonstrations, for example, of the biomass heating boilers that was done in large part by the government of the Northwest Territories went very well because, you know, they took a risky step in one way, but the fact that A, they worked, and B, they were saving money, um, uh, you know, there's been a fluctuation in the price of oil over the last 10 years, but certainly that has been a cost savings. Um, And a lot of people like the fact that essentially you're using, um, you know, a byproduct of the wood industry that would just be burnt anyway. So there's a bit of an attraction there of... um, using a waste product to heat. Mm-hmm. In terms of um, like solar, there were some people, early adopters, and again, um, you know, not always did that work, but where it worked and people saw that, um, that again built um, a trust for the technology and seeing that it actually does work and the beginnings of an industry in the north of people installing solar PV and getting better with it. Yeah. So, do you do you often end up with uh, early adopter projects or pilot projects before anything goes further or larger scale? Hi, it's Louis here. The answer to your question is yes, and failure is a part of how we define success. I wish I could say that every time we did something, it worked out well. 
that's not the case. We often will start uh, a project with a vision around what the outcome might look like, and we will try to roll it out, and no one might be interested, or very few people might be interested. So being flexible, being a not-for-profit, gives us the ability to rethink quite quickly what's not working, what's working, and because we're a very flat organization, we're able to bring our heads collectively together and bring many minds to the problem. And sometimes we can come up with a solution fairly quickly, revise what we do, and, and get a successful outcome. Sometimes it takes two, three, four tries. And ultimately, the, the goal is to, to achieve a more sustainable north in terms of more people choosing to conserve energy, but also more people, more businesses, not-for-profits, choosing renewable energies as, as a way to go forward. So, no, we're not so good as to do it, get it right the first time, but I guess we're <laughs> persistent. Well, that's, that's certainly part of it, right? If we, if we did everything right the first time, it would be a kind of boring world. <laughs> so, um, so what role are sort of the small scale renewable energy, uh, projects playing? Are there, is there enough interconnection with the electricity grids that they're feeding back to any larger grids or are they more so just very local projects? So the way things are set up here, we have in the southern part of the NWT, we have an electrical grid. Um, There's the Tolston Hydro uh, system. So that connects part of the southern NWT. There's also two other uh, grids that connect into Yellowknife and Betchko. So and their their history is they they come from the era of mining. They were uh, developed to provide energy because mining is a high energy uh, consumer. Um, so this is mining from 40s, 50s, 60s into the 70s. So that's what you have for hydro generated power. All the rest of the NWT are are small uh, local community grids that are uh, have diesel generators that provide electricity. There has been some solar uh, gradually uh, being um, developed and uh, fed into those uh, community grids. They're standalone microgrids. Um, there are one project, so we have the Northwest Territories Power Corporation responsible um, for electricity in the NWT, and they manage and are legislated to provide power. There's an act, an NWT Power Corporation Act, under the territorial legislation. So that's their responsibility, and that's how they do it. So this encompasses delivery of season, seasonal delivery of fuel to fire the generator through the year. Um, sometimes it's an annual barge service or it's hauled in over the, the winter road. There is a 20% limit on intermittent renewable energy because they have to um, run their generators. And, and most places have two or three generators, different sizes, according to the uh, electrical energy needs of the communities. And they're run... Um, according to uh, the load and the season. So any intermittent power has to fit in and not um, lag those generators. It has to be done in a way uh, that 
is efficient and isn't going to cause any trouble with the generators. So that's one of the restrictions, current restrictions. You can't have more than 20% annual load uh, provided by an intermittent renewable, whether wind or, or solar. Um, so people could put panels on their homes or they could the community could have like a little micro um, renewable farm, let's say solar farm. So the only exception to this currently, and what may become the model, will be interesting to see what happens, would be Colville Lake. So Colville Lake is a very small community. It's um, above the Arctic Circle, but it's still within the tree line. And there are about 150 population. Their generators had long since passed their uh, life. And so the Power Corporation decided to invest significant dollars and they put in um, 120 kilowatts of solar over two years, uh, invested in um, lithium-ion batteries and synced them in with um, current technology uh, generators. So they basically are running that community off the batteries with solar um, filling, you know, charging up the batteries. And when the solar cannot uh, fully charge the batteries, then the generators kick in. So that's a really interesting application and appears to be going very, very well. Yeah. So how well do photovoltaics work up north? You have excess in the summer and not enough in the winter? Well, I just, I'm just going to backtrack to the previous question then, I, if we could, please. Yeah. Uh, part of the challenge that I think the Northwest Territories is the canary in the coal mine on with renewables is that we're often trying to integrate new technologies with old technologies. And so the old technology is just a big diesel engine that keeps just chugging away at whatever speed. And it's there when you need it, but it's kind of smelly, noisy, and people don't really like them. And then along comes this new star-fangled technology that's quiet, and it just sits there, and it does its business. And the new technology and the old technology don't like each other a lot. And <laughs> it, it's sort of the philosophy runs down to the mechanics, I think, in this case. And the, the, the amount of money that's been spent on this old technology, sort of people have this idea that we have to recover all the money that we spent on these things, so we'll run them until they're dead. And, and so there's this philosophical debate around, you know, how much solar can we bring into a system without disrupting our old technology, as opposed to saying, how much solar can we max out on and let's not worry about this old technology because it's on its last legs anyways. And those kind of debates, I think, sort of are, are happening in boardrooms, not only in the Northwest Territories, I think they're, they're happening across the United States where you have strong competition for renewables that want to get onto the grid and existing systems, traditional, old-fashioned, smelly, messy, polluting systems that refuse to die. And we face that challenge up here in abundance because we have 33 microgrids. This is the perfect place for the zombie apocalypse because we have three <laughs> Uh, other communities we can go to if worse comes to worse, and each one has its own power generating system. But philosophically, what's happening with the disaggregation of knowledge, information into smaller and smaller units, 
is that the North, again, is, is a precursor, I think, to what you'll see in other jurisdictions where you won't have centralized power production, but you'll have distributed power generation. In the North, it's just by virtue of our geography and having spread out communities. But it's foreseeable in large urban centers where you have many, many microproducers who are selling their electrons into the electricity grid and getting paid for it and doing quite well by it. Thank you. So while the North is sort of far and remote and seems, you know, I think, to many people a bit backwards, perhaps, the challenges we're facing, both on the climate front in terms of the heating happening here sooner and faster, the challenges we're facing incorporating new technologies with old technologies is, is going to happen down south as well. And the lessons we're learning here, I think, will be will, will, will pay well for folks down south as they begin to adapt to a new reality. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um we uh when we have an interconnected power system it, it feels like this really big you know uh alberta has a lot of coal powered or coal fired power plants and it feels like this big monolithic thing to tackle uh whereas i you know further up north with the smaller grids it's it's easier to digest i guess and and easier to get a handle on how you might go about integrating these it's I think uh, going forward, it's not a question about are these new renewable energy sources, whether it be wood or wind or sunlight, viable. They are viable. They work. You know they work. The challenge is how do we get them to integrate? How do we have them integrated into a distributed energy system when everything we've done for the last 150 years is called centralized? And in a centralized system, it, there's there's the appearance of some rationality and some management control. Someone pushes a button somewhere and everybody gets light. In a distributed system, uh, management becomes incredibly complex and perhaps it's not managed. Maybe it becomes organic, but that means that regulators have to let go of the idea that maybe you can actually control things that maybe society was never meant to be centralized and controlled that way, that it's those individuals making decisions about putting panels on their roofs that's contributing to a more viable society. So the interplay between the philosophy of how we choose to live and how we choose to manage ourselves is really highlighted when it comes to renewables because they cause those philosophical questions to become tangible, real questions in terms of the money we spend, how we distribute our energy, how we produce it, and what force and effect an an individual has in that big decision-making system. With the integration of of old systems and new systems, um, how important is the reliability? If you have a newer technology that, for whatever reason, something fails, and you have to switch over to the old diesel technology or, you know, in a, in a situation potentially sometime in the future where your backup is, is batteries or something very different, um, what needs to be done to prove that that's a reliable system that people can trust? Well, it has to be a reliable system because, for example, in the winter, if you're running, if your heat is coming from your furnace and your power goes out for 12 hours, you will be facing freezing conditions. So it's, it is very, very important to um, have a reliable grid. 
like mini microgrid. Um, you asked the question before about um, if there, for example, would be lots of solar in summer and very little in winter. And that's true because of the environment and because of where the Northwest Territories is situated on the globe. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't use solar north of the Arctic Circle. You can't. But certainly your um, harvest of that energy is during the time when the sun is in the sky, like during the summer months, but you have a good six months. Um, an interesting thing about solar in the north is that the panels like cold. So our, even though um, uh, you might think that it follows how long the sun is in the sky, actually the, the bulk, the peak for solar um, harvest is April, March, April, May, and it starts June, and then it starts kind of tapering off because the voltage um, is higher with the cold and the reflection of the sunlight off the snow. So we actually can harvest um, a good uh, heart. We, we can generate a lot of electricity even at these latitudes with solar. But oh, okay. it's true in the winter when there's usually the highest load for electricity because it's dark and you're switching on lights, etc., etc., that is when the least amount of, of solar um, is produced. And so it's an interesting scenario. We have not in the territories really adopted wind beyond small-scale experimental some of which has failed miserably. But, um, you know, wind, you want elevation. So you want height, and it's um, pretty expensive uh, technology, you know, in terms of cost versus solar, where you can, you know, you can, for a few hundred thousand dollars, put in 35 to 50 kilowatts of solar, you're looking at millions of dollars for, for wind. So, And we have a lot of high wind areas in the NWT as well. Um, I think the reality for now, like an answer to that earlier question is, unless you pretty much don't use any electricity and you use wood or wood products for heat, you, we don't have a solution yet for that backup. And currently it is fossil fuels and they are used as efficiently as possible. Um, and that's why the Colville project is interesting because they're not using batteries as backup. They're using batteries as the supply of electricity. So the whole system runs off the batteries and the solar and the generators fuel the batteries, bring them up, and then they well, the, the generators shut off as soon as the batteries are, are charged. So it'll be real interesting to see what technologies happen in the future, or it just may be that that is the best we can do at this time with the technologies that we have available to us. So it may be that in this kind of a climate environment, you do have to use some fossil fuels, unless you are prepared to live a different lifestyle. And that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah. So with the with the batteries at the Colville um, sort of test project, um, so batteries don't necessarily like being cold. Uh, do you know how they're handling that challenge? Well, the whole system is set up in um, kind of like a sea can, two sea cans, and so you know they're insulated and all, and warm and heated. And uh, they seem to be working really well, um, but they have to be heated for sure. 
So then is the so the diesel the diesel generation there is charging the batteries and then the batteries are sort of what's directly supplying the electricity to the community? Correct. Oh, okay. But also there's that 120 kilowatt solar array. Right. Which even in, you know up until I think it's second week of December is um, producing electricity. So even though, you know, it's a very brief time, the sun is in the sky. So they've they've set things up like, you know, the angle of your array, very important here, right? So, you know, the rules are latitude plus or minus 15 degrees. So they are set at, I think, 65 degree angle. So they're catching a fair bit of winter sun, brief though, though it is. And we have a lot of cold, um, clear winter weather. So what is available is being got in terms of energy production. So this sort of brings me to another topic that I want to get into, but is not necessarily directly related or is not really directly related to transitioning communities to other forms of energy. But a few years back, the AEA did a study on how well a hybrid electric car handled the northern climate. Uh, so I'm really curious how well it did up there. And is it is it something that might make its way there in the near future, or is this is it still a, a ways off for winter use? The the car in the summertime worked just like any car you any electric vehicle that you would have in southern Canada. It was a Chevy Volt, so the engine charged the battery system, which drove the drove the vehicle, drove the wheels. In the wintertime, though, it was a different story. The, the generator, which was a small little engine, wasn't exactly, at least in our opinion, designed for you know, minus 45 degrees Celsius temperatures. And because it wasn't as robust, say, an engine that you would find in an internal combustion engine vehicle, uh, the, we thought that the engine was starting to deteriorate faster than we would expect in a normal combustion engine. Other than that, it worked just Jim Dandy. And the, the electric vehicle, um, just in terms of the electronics on board, was far and above anything that you could buy off the shelf in any standard combustion engine vehicle. So do they work in the north? Yes, they work in the north in the summertime, just like they do in southern Canada. In the winter, the range is is cut in half, and that's mostly because you're running internal heaters and the batteries don't like the cold, as you said. So if your electric vehicle is rated at 100 kilometers in the summer, you could probably get 50 kilometers in the winter. And then you'd, you would have your... A combustion engine kick in or your generator in this case to to drive it would i own one up here for long distance travel across our expansive territory no it's uh too risky a venture yet for electric only in this case because it was a chevy volt and we we're able to combine the uh, combustion generation capacity with the battery we were able to take it on long trips across the northwest territories so in this case the vehicle was traveling throughout the north southern north and without any issues whatsoever they work so and these and the chevy volt this was a plug-in hybrid right so you were charging it charging the battery off the the electric grid for the most part um uh, we were charging it off the grid but when we had depleted the battery during normal driving conditions the generator in the vehicle would kick in and keep charging the batteries 
Oh, okay. And was it big enough to handle the heating load and the driving load? Yep. Okay. So so electric cars in the Northwest Territories are still a little ways off. Uh, in the wintertime, I think pure electric vehicles, yes, but there's various types. I mean, you, there's battery hybrid vehicles. There's three or four different combinations and permutations of electric vehicles. And I think that's one thing the, the industry's been very poor at is differentiating the various types of electric vehicles that you can purchase. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's battery only, and then there's battery with on 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 site generators, and then there's another combination which escapes me. Uh, I think there's ones where they have an electric motor and just a typical combustion engine. And that would be the Piraeus, I think. And they're both to the drivetrain, right? So, so there there are these types out there, and I think the only one that be limiting in the Northwest Territories because of the distances, at least between communities that we have to travel, would be the electric only. Any other combination would work just fine. And they do work just fine up here. Yeah. Well, the electric only and the and the uh, and distance travel is is a problem throughout Canada, right? Mar? a lot of our cities aren't that close together. <laughs> nope, they're not close together. But as uh, Linda just said, in the Northwest Territories, we're, we're proud owners of a Tesla in the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. There's one in Hay River, Northwest Territories. And so the, the popularity of that vehicle and its functionality extends up here as well. Oh, okay. I didn't realize one of them had made, that w- made its way that far north. Yep. It's like a good disease. It's spreading. <laughs> we'll be right back after this short break. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. So getting back to um, to electricity generation, uh, we talked about photovoltaics and a bit about wind. Uh, so what sorts of hydroelectric generation does the NWT currently have? And is there much opportunity to expand that? We have, in the southern NWT especially, a lot of waterfalls. So in theory, we've got the natural resource. The co- because of small population and, you know, return on investment, um, none of the companies that could have chosen to develop any more than we already have. Um, we have the Talston Hydro, which the Power Corporation does want to expand and is looking at different uh, marketing possibilities, possibly hooking up another two communities in the NWT looking for southern markets. It's hard to know, and it would be best to talk with them, I guess, about what their um, views of the future of that are. And then in the northern, southern part, like Louis said, Yellowknife, there's two um, hydro systems that feed uh, power into Yellowknife. And Yellowknife also has a diesel backup system for times when there's low water or just too much demand for um, the hydro um, to fill. So is there much, is there a lot of seasonal variation in, because these are, um, 
they're run of river type hydro, right? There's there's not a lot of dam based hydro. Um, no, these would be dam systems. Oh, okay. I had my yeah. back. I had them backwards, I guess. I think we have any run of river here. That's another. There was an experiment done by the Power Corp about. 10 years ago in the Mackenzie with a very small, kind of like a torpedo-shaped um, river, five kilowatts, and it got whacked a bit by, um, uh, you know, um, trees, etc., stuff coming down the, the river. So they didn't pursue that any further, although it would be interesting to look at where that is at now. Like AEA, our focus is on energy efficiency. Well, first energy conservation, followed by energy efficiency, and then renewable energy. And large-scale projects are not within our means at this time anyway. So that's where we focus our work on, like taking care of the conservation and efficiency first so that you know there's a reduction in use and then follow that with renewable because then you'll get the most out of the renewable yeah actually so that's an area that we haven't talked much about yet uh so you mentioned that uh building heating was quite a bit higher in the north than it is in the rest of canada which makes sense so what uh, sort of activities are, I guess, the lowest hanging fruit to start reducing the need uh, in the north for, for building heat? Ironically, it's probably exactly the same type, type of activities that could be done in southern Canada. And that's just reducing the leakage of a home, the infiltration of cold air. The just plugging the leaks around windows, doors can reduce the fuel consumption by about 10% plus. So it's not rocket science and it's totally doable. It's a question of being able to identify the places where air is leaking in and sealing them up. And build better as well. So, you know, adopting building standards that are higher. Um, you know, I mean, the reality of the North is a lot of buildings have been thrown up very quickly, very cheaply, and very poorly. And so a significant amount of the infrastructure has been improved a lot. Um, we've worked with a lot of projects like that. Um, but any new buildings to really um, uh, construct them in a way that they are uh, very airtight, they have good ventilation, and therefore they can use, um, they don't require as big a heating unit and they can use less fuel for whatever source of fuel they're using for heating. So those are things that we work on as well. So is uh, is a net zero home in the Northwest Territories something that's realistic if you started from scratch? No. Just as too much heating required? No, it's not. I, I just I, I think that you're what you're proposing is an ideal which is possible I think in most places in the in the world. But, you know, the extreme north and the extreme south of the of our globe um, offer challenges that you're just not going to find in a place like Edmonton or Vancouver. And one of those challenges is, can I, you know, can I grow my food within 100 meters of my house for the entire year? And can I live in a net zero house? And the answer to those two is going to be no. Fair enough. It's, uh, it's, it's a rough, tough, cold climate. And the seasonality of our sunlight and the extreme cold mean that 
you're either going to have to really radically adapt your lifestyle on a seasonal basis, which most people are reluctant to do, and not justifiably so, to, to achieve net zero. Or our, our current building science isn't at the point yet where we can build a net zero home without spending our entire inheritance trying to do that. Fair enough. <laughs> I figured I'd ask. But yeah, th- I mean, they're hard enough to build in Edmonton, and we're substantially further south than you. I'm not sure about whether Edmonton, the city of Edmonton, requires all homes to be built to a particular standard. The city of Yellowknife does have a bylaw that requires all new homes to have a, a particular threshold of, uh, in, of energy use, particularly heating energy use. And so that's made a difference as well, is by requiring it across the board, it levels the playing field competitively for builders, and there are clear rules and expectations about what's expected from the public in terms of the new construction. And it's really made a notable difference in terms of the quality of the new homes being built because attention to detail during construction to save energy means attention to detail, period which means better homes. And the knock-on effects of paying attention to energy has been a higher quality housing stock. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Yeah, Edmonton doesn't have any energy efficiency building requirements locally, for sure, Uh, which definitely results in a widely varying quality of homes throughout the city. Um, So... I guess a, a another sort of not directly related question that I had. Um, so the Northwest Territories has, uh, I think, eleven official languages, and and some very you know very spread out communities uh, where English may not be a primary language for the community. So how does that add complexity to to this sort of exercise where a lot of the technology and the terminology is coming from the U.S. or you know Europe? Well, it does. Um, So the NWT is unusual in that they did adopt an official language act, and it was adopted at a time when the NWT included Nunavut. So we also have um, languages uh, from the Eastern Arctic that are recognized official languages. So just an example of of that, um, we've been involved in two projects, which where we've done worked with people on terminology development to come up with language in their language, traditional language, that reflect energy-related terms that we use. And we did that with a Tlincho language and also with the Anuvia Lukdan language. So the Tlincho language, the Tlincho region would be between Great Slave and Great Bear Lake, if you were looking on a map. And um, the Inuvialuktun language would be people who live around uh, Inuvik, um, like Beaufort Sea, Arctic Sea, and north there are some islands and also some other communities, kind of into moving into the Arctic, we call it archipelago. Um, so there, the last one we did was the Inuvialuit language, and so that's a part of. Uh, Inuktitut, the Inuit language, and a circumpolar language. It's quite interesting because people from Greenland through to Alaska, or this is what we were told by the elders there, um, they can communicate with one another, even though they have fairly different languages, but generally they can talk from one end to the other. 
So the purpose of this workshop, and we use this model for both, also with the Tlingchul language. So the elders are kind of like the walking dictionaries, if you will. The language, they generally have grown up in their language and are very uh, strong and knowledgeable. And younger period people, rather, due to, you know, colonization, education, etc. So they may not have as strong um, a rooting in the language. It sort of depends. So with both these workshops, um, we worked with uh, people who work in the area of language and the communities, and they identified the people, the language, the people who are knowledgeable about their languages. Um, we also have people who have been trained interpreter translators in the north because, because of the importance of the language and the importance of communication across languages. So we were able to pull um, people like that together into the workshop. And we had a visual um, of the different terms that we were using that we wanted uh, to develop language with. And it's kind of fascinating. So there's some terminology that is already there or old terms people have that are still relevant and useful. And um, these languages are, are very... Um, uh, would be kind of supple, I guess, would be the word where it's quite fascinating because I don't speak those languages, but watching the process and how um, people come up and they, it's, they're working in a group and, you know, small groups, and then they come together in the larger group and go through what they came up with, discuss that, and there's kind of this moment when everybody's like, that's it. So, um it was a lot of fun and a lot of learning. Um, and what it does a number of things. One, there's a term that can be used. So if you're in a meeting or a presentation where you have interpreters, they have words that they can use to interpret the discussion into their language. It also is interesting because everybody in that workshop learns about those technologies because they have to really get it to be able to um, uh, create a term that reflects whatever that is and the process of terminology development so for for this workshop we start in English and then we will go into uh, the language so the, say the Inuvia Lucton language and so um, then that term so the term is come up with and then that term is interpreted back into English to see if it retains the meaning throughout that um, process. So that's kind of the final thing. And uh, so like I say, they, the people in the workshop, um, there's a lot of learning there, and they become knowledgeable about the concepts and the ideas and the terms and how things fit together. So it has a lot of benefit. Um, also for kids and um, developing school materials and things like that. So these words um, get into uh, quite a, they, they have their own path and uh, uh, can be used in a variety of settings. So it's a lot of fun and um, I think a really different but interesting way of, of getting that information and awareness across. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that was how it worked out, but that makes a lot of a lot of sense. 
are there are there any other questions or topics that um, I should have asked you about and I've just completely completely missed? Does everybody know what pellets are? Yeah, fair question. It might be worth explaining. Yeah, so pellets are compressed sawdust, generally. And in the wood lumber industry, about half of, like when you go out by 2x4 or 2x6, the original um, piece of, of tree, half of that uh, ended up in sawdust on the floor of the mill. So that sawdust is gathered up and compressed, kind of like, like a garlic press. It's um, compressed and it becomes, it releases a chemical lignin in in the wood that kind of binds it together. So a big danger for wood pellets is water because if they get wet, you end up with a soggy mass of sawdust. So there's no additives or anything in it. it that's that's what it is. All right. Yeah, that's a fair point. I It's probably one of those blind spots where I just assume that people know what I know. There's, there's one other thing that I think uh, your re- listeners might find interesting is um, recently there was a small indigenous community which decided that it wanted to become utility. And, de- and sort of decolonization through its own sense of purposeful direction when it comes to creating energy. And they took it upon themselves to find the money to uh, they retained us as their sort of expert support agency and they went out and built their own little utility and Linda I think can speak more to it because she was acting as agent to the community and she can give you a bit of a a background, but it was the first and only community in the Northwest Territories, Indigenous, to sign a power purchase agreement with the uh, the major industrial player in the Northwest Territories, and their actions have helped to shape territorial policy in this regard. Yeah, so this project was about, well, it's been a lot of years in the making, but um, this community has always has some very strong um, values of self-reliance, resilience, and self-sufficiency. And they had looked at Run a River and some potential hydro. Costs escalated over time. Anyways, they still wanted to um, uh, develop a power source and so they decided um, through through one, two, three changes of chief and council, which which is very meaningful, um, to do this project. So they uh, installed a 35 kilowatt mini solar farm, and uh, it was installed at the old tank farm, <laughs> which was kind of nice. The tank farm had been moved, so that was really a brownfield. Um, you know, it couldn't be couldn't be used really for much because there had been uh, fuel leakage or it had been um, uh, addressed and and cleaned up and all but still it was a site that was just sitting empty and uh, across from uh, the um, the power corporation building where the generators are and so yeah they uh, sought funding support um, through government, through uh, like through federal and territorial government, as well as through bull, bullfrog power, and um, uh, part of the project was to do training. So the contractor who's going to install the solar had to be able to provide pre- training to people who were interested in the community. So they did do that. They had a five-day training, 
and also important to the community was employment, even short-term employment. So the people who completed the training were offered to work on the install, and two of the people did. So they worked like start to finish on um, installing solar in their community. Uh, the uh, band council, because this was through a band council, uh, negotiated an agreement with the Power Corp, a power purchase agreement. And um, there's actually a wonderful moment when the senior admin officer was asked at a conference where this project was presented, who did the negotiating, like who developed the power purchase? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders and said, well, we did. Um, so that was kind of great. So basically between the Power Corp and you know, the agreement was put to a place where everyone was in agreement and then sent to the lawyers for final um, review. So that's fairly unique. So they um, have an agreement for the uh, um, the power corporation purchases the power that's produced from the solar. Does um, It's like a wholesale rate, um, but uh, there's it generates income for the community. And they passed a bank council resolution that those funds would be um, put together um, for future renewable energy projects. So they're wanting to to do more in that area. Okay. And this is a fly-in. This is one remote community. There's no winter road, nothing. It's fly-in or by um, a boat or uh, or skidoo. That's how you get there. there. Well, they do have a flight a day, small aircraft. But um, so all the materials have to be flown in. Um, so it's an interesting project logistically as well. Oh, that's that's really interesting. That's good to hear. This year we uh, were able to. There's 33 communities in the Northwest Territories, and one project took the equivalent of two of those communities completely off the system, electricity system. So theoretically, we only have 31 communities now burning diesel to produce electricity. And that was accomplished by a project we call the LED project. And through the distribution of 11,000 screw-in LEDs and the swapping out of the fluorescent tubes for, for for LED type of bulbs, we were able to take the equivalent of two communities completely off-grid. That's how much the overall electricity usage in the territory got reduced? Yes. Okay, wow. For comparison purposes, if Alberta was to have accomplished this, Red Deer would no longer be using power. That's a pretty significant amount of power. I think if Canada really wants to advance its global carbon targets, just outlaw incandescence and uh, really bad fluorescence, and we will make grand strides in that direction. Thank you, both of you, so much for your for joining me and for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So you can learn more about Louis Azzolini and Linda Todd and find links to information about the Arctic Energy Alliance at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. 
Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 